This morning we will be in the Gospel of John, chapter 19, starting in verse 41. We'll be reading through chapter 20, verse 18, starting in John, chapter 19, verse 41. This is the life-giving Word of God. Now in the place where He was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. Therefore, because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came early to the tomb while it was still dark and saw the stone already taken away from the tomb. So she ran and came to Simon Peter and to the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken away the Lord out of the tomb and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter and the other disciple went forth, and they were going to the tomb. The two were running together, and the other disciple ran ahead faster than Peter and came to the tomb first. And stooping and looking in, he saw the linen wrappings lying there, but did not go in. And so Simon Peter also came following him and entered the tomb, and he saw the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth which had been on his head not lying with the linen wrappings but rolled up in a place by itself. So the other disciple, who had first come to the tomb, then also entered, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise again from the dead. So the disciples went away again to their own homes. But Mary was standing outside the tomb weeping. And so as she wept, she stooped and looked in the tomb. And she saw two angels in in white sitting, one at the head and one at the feet, where the body of Jesus had been lying. And they said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, Because they have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. When she had said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, and did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, If you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Hebrew, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Stop clinging to me, for I have yet to ascend to the Father. But go to my brethren and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, and my God and your God. Mary Magdalene came announcing to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. Good morning. The Lord Jesus Christ is risen. That's the reason we gather on Sunday, amen? Amen. Not just once a year. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. For the Christian, every day is Resurrection Sunday. It's the victory of Christ over sin and death that makes you righteous. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Open your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And before we get into our study, we want to pray for a dear couple in our church that will be moving on. It was about three weeks ago, um, our sister Katie moved on to heaven. We miss her. She died. She's in the presence of the Lord. Last week, we sent off our dear friends, the Judds, as they relocated to uh, San Francisco, and here this week, where are the where are you, wise? There you are. Um, 
Brandon, Melissa, and Keenan will be moving out to Minnesota. So we're going to ask them to stand and we're going to pray together for them. Uh, I'm going to miss you both dearly. As I said last service, I'll say it again. I'm going to miss you, Keenan. I'm going to miss you, buddy. I love you, Keenan. I'm going to miss you. That's what I looked like when I was a little kid. true i have photos to prove it he's my buddy we're going to miss the wife says thank you for your service to the body here um god's grace has been evident in and through your lives thank you for sticking through thick and thin in the years before um i praise god that uh how much you've grown um thank you for supporting me and uh i'll miss you we love you but we look forward to we're spending eternity together doesn't matter if you're in Minnesota or not. We'll pray that you will be the light of gospel truth to everyone that God puts in your path. Amen? Be it in your medical field or in your architecture field, both y'all, as well as Kenan and as many children as the Lord might bless you with. So let's pray for this dear couple. <clears throat> Father, we thank you <clears throat> for the testimony and the ministry of the saints Sinners saved by grace, proclaimers of truth, sojourners, pilgrims here on this earth. And uh, I thank you for the time that I have been able to uh, minister alongside um, the Weiss family. I thank you for Keenan. I pray that he'll grow up to continue to serve you, to love you, um, and love and embrace your glorious gospel. For Brandon, as the head of the family, to lead his family by grace um, from the gospel. For Melissa and Brandon both, to shine as lights of the glory and the goodness of your Son, Jesus Christ. May you bless them in their travels, their homestead, their family, and their time with family. Um, We thank you for them. May you bless them greatly in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be looking together this morning at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 12 through 20. So let's look at it together. Now, if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain, your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Let's pray that the Lord might bless our time in the reading study of his word this morning.
Father, we thank you for eternal truth. We thank you for the one true way. We thank you that you have made manifest the reality of your existence and the plan of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the authority and inspiration of scripture. We thank you for the supernatural regenerating work of the Holy Spirit to those that are yours. And we thank you for your sanctifying work through the preaching of your word to grow us in grace and knowledge of your son, Jesus Christ. May your people be blessed this morning. Sanctified, rooted in the truth of the resurrection. And for those who may have walked in this morning who don't have a true saving relationship with you, they believe that all roads lead to God. May they be awakened today to the reality of Jesus Christ, who is the way, the truth, and the life. For you said, no one comes to the Father except through me. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. As residents of California... If we were asked this morning what the worst disaster in California history was, we would ponder for a moment and we would all most likely answer correctly saying, well, it's the earthquake and the subsequent fires of 1906 in San Francisco where nearly 2,000 people lost their lives. This is what you'd answer, right? However, in, in, in terms of lives lost, if we as residents of California, were asked to I r- rightly identify the second worst disaster in California history, most of us would probably err. We'd say, well, it's probably one of the raging fires or one of the other earthquakes that we've experienced over the last many decades. We would be wrong. The answer is the St. Francis Dam disaster of 1928. The St. Francis Dam was built in 1925 and 1926 as a curved concrete gravity dam in the San Francisquito Canyon, which is about five miles northwest of San Clarita, five miles northwest of Magic Mountain. The purpose of the dam was to provide an additional 38,000 acre feet of water storage. But the dam failed catastrophically in 1928, killing hundreds of people. And it was the greatest American civil engineering failure of the 20th century. Minutes before midnight on the evening of March 12, 1928, the dam's 185-foot-high concrete wall crumbled and collapsed. It's collapsed, sending billions of gallons of raging floodwaters down the San Francisco Canyon. And as the flood picked up debris, it became a giant thick snake of mud, water, houses, and bodies moving along at about 12 miles an hour, right into the Pacific Ocean. The water weighed almost 52 million tons. And the problem was that the dam was built on a giant ancient landslide, which reactivated. The mass of land that moved was weighed 877,500 tons. More than three times the weight of the dam, which weighed 250,000 tons. So the problem was not with the structure. The problem was not with the dam. The problem was not with the walls. The problem was not with the steel. The problem was not with the concrete. But... 
the catastrophic collapse was due to the foundational ground upon which it was built. Our focus this morning is the foundational ground of Christianity that validates the gospel, that validates and secures one's hope of eternal life for without which there's no hope, period. According to Yeshua, who is the Christ. Without the resurrection, beloved, the walls of one's faith catastrophically come tumbling down. The title of the message this morning, it's in your bulletin, The Calamities of Christianity, If Christ is Not Risen. Now, everything that we hold dear to as Christians including our future hope of seeing loved ones who've preceded us in death, i.e. Katie, who passed just three weeks ago, is based on and made possible by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So it's crucial that we as Christians come to understand the absolute centrality of the resurrection to our own faith. And nowhere is that message declared more profoundly than right here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul's purpose in this chapter is to respond to something that was going on in Corinth. And if you're familiar with the Bible, you know, you're like, well, what? There was a lot of stuff going on in Corinth. A lot of stuff that was no good, right? And that's true. The Corinthian church was made up of many Greeks. Many Greek people. And the Greeks did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. When Paul was preaching on Mars Hill, in the Areopagus, he's preaching in front of these philosophers, he's preaching in front of these intellects of the day, and in Acts 17.32, it says, Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Resurrection of the dead. You see, the Greeks had bought into this kind of dualism, believing that the spirit was good and anything physical was bad. Physical was evil. Their philosophy taught that the body was the prison of the soul, which is the source of wickedness and weakness. They couldn't conceive of a body that continued to exist after death. And that was the kind of thinking that Paul had to deal with when he wrote this letter to these Corinthians. Many Christians had come to believe that once the body goes to the ground, that's it. Katie's with the Lord, her body's in the ground, and one day that body will be raised up, fit for eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. Amen. But some influential men within the church here, Corinth, had bought into this Greek way of thinking teaching that once a person dies, he or she continues to exist eternally only in spirit. And that is the false teaching that Paul is trying to correct through this letter. Notice in verse 12. Now, if Christ is preached he's been, that he's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. 
So Paul now, for the sake of argument, hypothetically takes their position. Okay, you don't want to miss this. He hypothetically stands in their shoes to assume for just a moment that the resurrection is not true. And if this be so, then no one ever has and no one ever will be raised from the dead. And if this be true, even Christ hasn't been raised from the dead. So the results of such a thought are are quite staggering. And we're going to focus on some of those thoughts this morning. Because if he hasn't been raised, all hope is lost. We are fools. What are we here for? Had not Christ risen from the dead. We're a laughing stock. So Paul wants to go on to catalog now the frightening consequences for us who profess Jesus Christ if Christ, in fact, hasn't been raised from the dead. So the argument is set up for us in order to convince us of the absolute centrality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's his purpose. And if that foundational stone, the resurrection of the Lamb of God, the Lord of glory, who spoke all things into existence, came out of heaven, took on a human body to lay his life down, to die after upholding the law, has not raised, the walls of Christianity come tumbling down. There's no hope. Christianity, therefore, is nothing more than any other dead world religious system. No different than Scientology. No different than Islam. No different than Buddhism. No different than Hinduism. No different than Judaism. No different than Universalism. They're all dead religions. And if Christ isn't raised, you can throw Christianity into the garbage heap of every other system of belief. Those aren't my words. That's the Bible. So here's the flow of Paul's argument. In the first 11 verses, Paul teaches that the resurrection is the central event in Christianity. Demonstrating for us that this is an historical fact and it's based on two realities. Number one, the empty tomb of Jesus Christ. He was crucified and his body was laid in the grave of a rich man, Joseph of Arimathea. And on Sunday morning, that tomb was empty. The second argument for the historicity of the resurrection are the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus Christ. Look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to what? The Scriptures. Now, beloved, the Scriptures mean according to the Old Testament. The New Testament hadn't been written yet. It's being written as he pens this letter, you see. And that, verse 4, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day, again, according to the Old Testament, according to the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. 
In other words, some have died. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as one untimely born, he appeared to me also. And then when we get to verse 14, we arrive at the heart of Paul's argument. He sets out to expose this illogical thinking and the teaching of these very popular Corinthian, quote-unquote, preachers. He says that if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ himself hasn't been raised. And then in verses 14 to 19, Paul records six calamities of Christianity if indeed Christ has not been raised. Calamity number one, there is no authentic gospel. Verse 14, look at the first part of verse 14. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Now, preaching here isn't referring to what I'm doing this morning, but rather pertains to the content of Paul's message. This apostolic truth saying, the content of what I have been teaching is empty. It is in vain. Now, the question is, what is it that Paul has been teaching them? Again, verse 3, I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. You see, that's the message that he delivered to them. That's the good news. My friends, that is the gospel. Which means what? Thank you. Good news. Why is there good news? Because there's bad news. Thank you. That we are sinners and God demands absolute perfection to get to heaven. Sinlessness is what it takes to get to heaven. So you either get there on your own or you come by way of Christ. And if he didn't raise, the gospel's vain. The word vain means empty. Without substance, absolutely void. If Jesus didn't raise, then the gospel that Paul had given his entire life for is of no significance whatsoever. And if it not be true, then the foundation of Christianity is sinking sand, beloved. And it comes crashing down just like the St. Francis Dam. All these walls that have been built up The history of Christianity, it all comes a crumbling down if Christ has not risen from the grave. That's his argument. But what did Paul say by inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 1 verse 4 regarding Jesus Christ? That he was declared the Son of God with power by what? By the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace. Unmerited favor. That's what grace is. And if Christ is not raised, then neither the apostles nor anyone in this room are recipients of grace. If his body remains in some obscure Jewish grave or some ossuary, as the history channel will attempt to tell you. And then we Christians go, huh, man, maybe he really didn't raise from the grave. Examine yourself to see if you're in the faith. And I say that with love and a smile. <laughs> 
Jesus Christ and his gospel are then suspect. The gospel that we have bought into, the gospel that we believe, is as fictional as every other belief system throughout time. That's calamity number one. His preaching, vain. Calamity number two, if Christ is not risen from the grave, verse 14b, your faith is vain. Quite simply put, your faith also is vain, says the apostle. Meaning, your faith is empty, your faith is without substance, your faith, it's void. So Paul is saying, I I preach to you the glorious good news of Jesus Christ. You believed it. But if Christ hasn't risen from the grave, both the content of that message which I preach to you and your belief in that message, it's of no value. So you're wasting my time listening and I'm wasting your time. You may believe, but your, your, your faith, it's worthless. You know, I, now I say, this is very important if you're here and you believe that there's more ways than one. Now, first of all, you're here because you, you have some sense of belief in, Christi- in Jesus Christ and the fact that he did raise up again, or I don't think you'd be here. There's perhaps, perhaps it's some rote tradition, but nevertheless, somewhere in your mind, you believe in Jesus, something about him. And that he raised from the dead, perhaps. But I'm going to tell you something. If you believe any other thing but that, the Bible says that you're deceived and you're lost. Again, the inspired word of God reads, Romans 10, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, did you get that? You will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes. And if a person believes with his heart into Christ, not merely about Christ, but into Christ, a transformation takes place. And you know what it is? Next word. Resulting in righteousness. Meaning, because he raised, after laying his life down as a sacrifice, after upholding the law of God perfectly in my place, he transforms me. I believe into Christ, therefore my life is radically transformed and I go from living evil. Well, I'm not evil. I, you know, I'm a good person. And I think if you're good enough, you get to heaven. That's, the, that's as evil as you can get. That is the essence of pride. Well, I'm not like the murderers. Oh, but you're good enough to meet God's standard then. Well, let me tell you, when one believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, it results in righteousness by grace. By grace. And with the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. He confesses what? I be- not that I believe Jesus Christ raised from the dead after paying for my sin. Now, I believe that, but because I love you and you're my friend and you believe this, you believe in Hinduism or you believe in Islam or Judaism, you're going to be in too so long as you're sincere. No. No. You become as exclusive in your thinking as Jesus is. I am the way, the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Because I raised from the dead. 
You see, the literal death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection from the dead are twin doctrines of the Bible. Woven together. They both must be believed in order to be saved. And if you believe that Christ literally died and literally rose again, then you believe that he has validated who he claimed to be the only way. So to believe in the resurrection and some other belief contradicts what you claim about Christ. So it's not these truths along with other, some, some other system of belief. These historical events, events are true and they happened as recorded by the apostles or they are fabricated and your faith is vain, worthless, empty, void, and it's all for nothing. That's his argument. You know, most people today are blind victims of this postmodern, modernistic view that all roads lead to heaven. Truth is relative. There is no objective truth. It's all a matter of what you feel inside. The last thing you want to do or I want to do is trust what's inside. <laughs> oh my. Even if you're a Christian, you do not have a perfect heart. Positionally in the eyes of God, yes, but not practically. That's why we have to keep coming with truth from the outside. Objective truth of God. Not subjective truth of John. Or Sally. Or Sue. Or Steve. You know, truth is really whatever you feel. It's what you believe inside. That lie comes from where? The pit of what? Hell. Relativism is from the pit of hell. Hath God truly said, said the devil? Has God really said? Let me tell you, Eve, what God thinks. If you eat of that tree, he knows and he's jealous. If you eat of it, you're going to be like him. And that's the lie. To be like God. To be a God. Little G, but I'm still a God. Wrong. According to the one who claimed to be the son of God, according to the one who died, literally, the one who rose again from the dead, it does matter what you believe and in whom you believe in order to be saved. No amount of faith in faith. It's not faith in faith. It's about the substance of one's faith. And if the substance of one's faith is flawed, you're deceived. So to believe in a risen Savior who's still in the grave, it makes your faith worthless. See, confidence in the gospel is indefensible if he hasn't risen from the dead. It's not justifiable if he's still in the grave or in some stone bin. If Christ has not been raised, there's no legitimate gospel. There is no hope. There's no true faith. Thirdly, if Christ has not been raised from the grave, the apostles are false witnesses. Forget about Paul, Peter. Forget about John. Forget about them all. Verse 15. Moreover, 
we're even found to be false witnesses of God. Why? Because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. So this phrase here, we are found, see that? We are found to be false witnesses. It's usually used to describe someone who's been found out, whose true colors have been revealed. Most certainly, most of us have been around people who claim to be one thing. They boast about being something. But in time, it's revealed what they're really made up of. There's someone I know right now, this very moment. He doesn't go to this church, lives elsewhere. Another city, another state. Who at one time made a bold profession of Jesus Christ. Who at one time was able to articulate the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Who believes no longer in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So he's in the process of becoming an apostate to walk away from. So if he walks away from this faith and never repents, what does that prove? According to Second John, 1 John 2, it means he was never truly saved. Because the scripture says in 1 John 2, they went out from us because they were never really of us. For if they would have been of us, they would have remained with us. But because they went out from us, it proved that they were never of us. They were found out. So Paul says, well, look, I guess we've been found out. Our true colors, I guess, have been revealed. If in this case... The Corinthians are right, and the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised, we've been exposed. Then all of those who've ever been taught by me that there's a resurrection from the dead, anyone that's ever been taught by those who've come before me cannot be trusted, and they are also false witnesses of God. So Paul concludes then, well, we're liars. And on top of that, we've actually falsely accused God of doing something that he has not done. So, notice what Paul assumes here. It's very interesting. He assumes that there's only two possibilities. Number one, that the Corinthians are telling the truth. Or number two, they're lying. Did you notice there's no third category here? what they feel inside. No room for open theism here. No third category for, well, we don't want to offend, so whatever you tell us, we accept that. Can't we all just get along? So not only does he say our testimony is false if Christ didn't raise, but that we've spoken against God. Meaning that we've spoken in contradiction to him. You see, it's a serious crime to say that God said this when he didn't. Thus saith the Lord. God dealt with false prophets in the Old Testament. Remember in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 21, he said, I did not send these prophets, but they ran, they went out, I did not speak to them, but they prophesied. They were the ones saying, I have a dream, I have a dream, I have a dream. And God says, that dream's not for me. You're all false prophets. 
So if Christ hasn't been raised, then all those who've ever taught that God raises the dead are no different than the false prophets of Jeremiah's day, and that's his point. They're liars. I guess we're liars, he said. We can't be trusted. Or you're lying. So who would this include then? These liars. Well, notice, it would include all the witnesses of verses 5 through 7, including Paul himself, verse 8, the 12 apostles, not, not Judas, but Matthias, the one who replaced Judas, the 500 witnesses of verse 6, the apostles who preached this, verse 11, and that would include, verse 4, all the Old Testament prophets who spoke and looked forward to the coming one who spoke of the coming one, who would live, who would be crushed by the Father, who would, be, who would bear the wrath of the Father in Isaiah, and who would raise up again. All of them, which means you can take your Bible and throw it away. And you know who else is a liar? Jesus. Remember in John chapter 2? Jesus was just beginning his ministry. He goes in at the time of Passover into Jerusalem. He enters into the temple courts. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who were selling oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers seated at their tables. What did gentle Jesus do? He went out, and he made a cord of whips. And he chased all the money changers out with the whip along with He drove out along with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins, turned the tables upside down and to those who were selling the doves, he said, take these things away, stop making my father's house a place of business. His disciples at that point remembered, zeal for your house will consume me. So the religious hypocrites come up. They say, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? You're messing up our religious system. You're making us look bad, right? Jesus answered. He said this. Let me tell you what my authority is. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. Yeah, amen. And then the Jews said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he said this, and they believed the scripture, there it is again, and the word which Jesus had spoken. The scripture. You see, Jesus established early on in his ministry for the reason of his authority. I'm going to die. And by the way, no man takes my life. I lay it down freely. And by the way, not only do I have the power to lay it down freely, I have the power to take it up again. It's according to my volition. So the sign and the symbol of Jesus' authority was to tear down the temple of his body and have them watch it raise up. So if Christ is not raised from the dead, Jesus himself is either deceived or he himself is a deceiver. Heavy argument, amen? Heavy. 
See, Jesus staked everything he ever did or said on the reality of his resurrection. If Christ has not been raised, then the Bible in your, in your laps is no more valuable than the Quran. It's no more valuable than the Book of Mormon. It's no more valuable than the writings of Charles Taz Russell of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's no more valuable than the prophecies of Mary Baker Eddy. There's no reliable revelation that's come out of heaven for us who are sinners and helpless and hopeless, period, end of story, if Christ hasn't raised up from the dead. Fourth calamity. If Christ isn't risen from the dead, you're still in your sin. There's been no true forgiveness. Verse 16, for... If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith, it's worthless, and you're still in your sins. So, Paul again reminds them as to the flow of his argument, verse 16. If the dead don't rise, Christ hasn't risen. If Christ hasn't risen, here's your dilemma. Major problem. Your faith, it's worthless. The word worthless is similar to the word vain, but it is a bit different. Worthless speaks of something that generates no results. You can preach it and preach it and preach it and preach in it, and there's no results. And what doesn't this produce? All the claims of Christ? If Christ wasn't raised, you're still in your sins. It produces no real forgiveness. In other words, friends, there's no true salvation. There's no way to be saved. So the, the ministerial work of Jesus Christ, his earthly ministry, his work on the cross, it's all meaningless. But you see, the New Testament, far and wide, connects the resurrection of Jesus Christ with forgiveness. This is key. In Romans chapter 4, verse 25, He who was delivered over because of our transgressions, who was delivered over, Jesus, and was raised because of our what? Justification. He was delivered over, he was suffered for the sake of our transgressions. We are sinners by nature, we were born sinners, and we will remain sinners positionally until we're transformed by God. He was raised in order to accomplish our justification. Justification means to be declared free from what? From all blame. That's what justification is. And if you're a Christian, you've been justified. We've been made right with a holy, righteous, pure God. So therefore, his forgiveness for us and and the righteous declaration of God towards us are associated both with his death and his resurrection, two doctrines that are knit together. You know, know, a lot of times we could think, well, why didn't Jesus just come down on a Friday? We know he came out of heaven, right? He's God, John 1. He spoke all things into existence. Now, he could have come down on a Friday maybe and just died and then raised up again the third day. Answer, no. He could not have. Jesus was born under the law. Jesus had to be born under the law. He had to grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. 100% human? Yes. 100% God? Yes. He had to uphold the law of God perfectly. Without flaw, without error. And then lay his life down as the perfect sacrifice. 
sacrifice. So he couldn't come rolling in on Friday. He had to be born through a woman so that he was 100% human, but she was impregnated by the Holy Spirit, 100% God, the God-man, the second Adam. Fulfilling perfectly what the first Adam could not. Accomplishing what our Adamic nature could never accomplish. You see, we're all in Adam. You come out the womb a sinner by nature because of Adam's sin, amen? And then he lays his life down as the perfect sacrifice in order to atone for the sins of his elect. So why then is the resurrection so crucial to salvation? What does it prove? That's the question. What does the resurrection prove? It proves this, beloved. The resurrection of Jesus Christ proves that the Father accepts the Son's sacrifice. Accepted. It's God's seal, <clears throat> seal of approval. It pays the debt for which we could never pay. So without that seal of approval, Christ's resurrection, Christ's, Christ's suffering and sacrifice simply was not sufficient. And therefore, you're still in your sins. That's his argument. You're still in your sins. You are unforgiven. And you are embracing a worthless faith. So we're here this Resurrection Sunday for nothing. Had he not raised from the grave. And if Christ has not been raised, there's no gospel. There's no living faith. There are no authentic apostles. Therefore, there's no reliable revelation that's come down from heaven. And there's no actual forgiveness. We're still guilty and in our sins. That leads us to the fifth calamity of Christianity. If Jesus is not raised from the grave... It's pretty simple, right? No eternal life. Notice verse 18. Then, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have what? They've perished. Notice the word then. Then implies for us that what he's about to say be inevitably conclusive. That which is he, he's already been saying here for the last few verses. Which in this verse means, therefore, as a result, as a result, those who've died before us, they're in hell. So he wants his readers to reflect on a point that relates to a past generation of believers, those dear loved ones who were in Christ, who preceded them in death, fallen asleep. A New Testament euphemism for death. In our day, in English, we use the euphemism what? They have passed on. They've died. So if we, who are alive, are still in our sins, then it must also be true that those who have preceded us in death died in their sins, and if they died in their sins, then they've perished. And if what the Corinthians believed about the resurrection were true... Not only have they perished, we will perish, and everyone hereafter will perish. Now, the word perished is the translation of, of a word which is one of Paul's favorites in the New Testament, by the way. And it means to be eternally separated from God. It does not mean annihilation. It means conscious, everlasting torment. 
For instance, right here in 1 Corinthians, back in chapter 1, verse 18, the word of the cross, the message of the cross, the one true way is what he means, is foolishness to those who are what? Perishing. People who hear this message and roll their eyes, take a deep sigh and go, this is absolutely ridiculous. This kind of authoritative statement like this, this is the only way, the cross, ridiculous. They're perishing. 2 Corinthians 4.3 Even if our gospel's veiled, it's veiled to those, those who can't see or understand, it's veiled to those who are what? Perishing. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he defines unbelievers as this, quote, those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be what? Saved. This is a saving message. So those who haven't repented and accepted and surrendered to Jesus Christ will be forever perishing. They won't be annihilated. They will, they will be in conscious torment forever. And Jesus himself made this very clear time and time again. One verse, Matthew 25, verse 46. These, on his left, will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So Paul says, in effect, look, if Christ is not risen, all those loved ones you've buried who believed in Christ, they're perishing. <clears throat> they're suffering eternal torment right now, forever, just as you will. Is this heavy? Does this man know how to draw up an argument? So here now is the calamity of all calamities. There's no eternal life. And if this is what we profess and this is what we believe in Christ hasn't risen from the dead, there's another calamity while we live. Sixth calamity of Christ isn't risen from the grave. We are a pitiful, pitiful bunch of people. Gullible. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, well, he's a good moral, ethical teacher. So I'm going to follow the ways of Jesus. He was a good man, right? If that is the extent of one's belief in Jesus and there's nothing after this, notice, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. So Paul now summarizes all of his arguments that we've looked at thus far. If Christ has not been raised, the gospel is of no substance. Faith in Jesus, worthless. Trust in his word, worthless. The witness in the ministry of the apostles, well, they're liars. We, we're still in our sin. We're under the penalty of judgment. We're under the penalty and the power of sin. Therefore, there's no eternal life. And if we're going to believe in him just here, and he hasn't raised from the dead, we are pitiful. We should be mocked. Because we're a bunch of morons. Encouraging or depressing? <laughs> Notice, that's depressing. But Paul doesn't end here. Paul concludes in verse 20. But now, here's the sigh of relief. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who are asleep... Notice the word but. It changes the series of negative statements on the resurrection and turns them all into the positive testimony of Jesus. 
And then the word now indicates there's a logical conclusion to all this, friends. So for the sake of argument, Paul has assumed that Christ hasn't been raised from the dead, exposing the calamities involved if he hadn't, but now he simply brings us back to the facts, back to reality. This, my friends, is like waking up from a bad nightmare. What a relief that is. Whoo! And you grab your spouse and you're just, thank you, Jesus, that that did not really happen. (laughs) So what is the reality? All of the negative, disastrous consequences, had Christ not been raised, they're not true. Because he did raise. So, what does that mean? The exact opposite is true. All those negatives now are turned into positives. What are they? It's quite simply this. Six but nows. But now, number one. But now. Since Christ has been raised, the apostles' preaching, not in vain. My preaching, not in vain. Your preaching, not in vain. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the one and only message. The the gospel of Jesus Christ is the only way of salvation. Secondly, but now, because Christ has been raised, your faith is not in vain. Your faith is realistic. Your faith is sensible. Your faith is rational. And above all, beloved, your faith is eternal. It's defensible. It's justifiable. Had not Christ raised up out of that grave, you going to share the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ with your friends and co-workers who might mock you anyway? (gasps) Right. (laughs) But because he did, and claimed to be the only way, who provided the sacrifice who provides the way for you to be saved did raise up from the grave so we can defend this. Always be ready to give a reason for the hope that lies within you with gentleness and respect. What's the hope? Not that he died, but that he died and rose up again. Thirdly, but now. Since Christ has been raised, the apostles, they're not false witnesses about the work of God. Their message is true. God's revelation to man, beloved, is reliable. The Bible is the only authoritative, inspired word of God. The Koran belongs in the trash. Every other belief system, burn it. This is truth. Man, that's really offensive, cutting down other faiths like that. That's right. They're an offense to God. The one true, true way. Who do you get more offended by? People offend God or offended because they're offended because you point out the error of their ways. There's a right way to do that and a wrong way to do that. Amen? I don't tell the Jehovah's Witnesses when they come to my door, did you know you're, you're following a lie from the pit of hell and you're going to burn for eternity? <laughs> no. You can get there and say that gently, but you, know, you reason from the scriptures and you know, they're false you know, the new living, the new world translation, which is, a well, it's in the Greek. You don't even know Greek. <laughs> and the people who translated that don't know Greek. Just ask a Greek linguist, a scholar, an unbelieving scholar, and they'll tell you, this is ridiculous. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was a God. But you're a Jehovah's Witness. I thought you were a monotheistic person. You believe in one God. Well, we do. Well, it just says Jesus is a God, so you're polytheistic, right? Hello. (laughs) Number four. Now, if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. But now, but now, since Christ has been raised, you're not any longer in your sins. And the glorious truth of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 is valid. Look at it. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf in order that we might become what? Righteousness. Of who? Of God. In him, Christ. Which is to say that on the cross, God the Father treated Jesus as though he lived your sinful life. We'll just say my sinful life. That's bad enough. God the Father treated Jesus the Son as though he lived my wretched, cruel, rotten, sinful life. And by bringing me to saving faith, according to his grace and his timing, he treats me forever as though I lived Christ's righteous, perfect, holy life. That's the great exchange. That's who you are in Christ. Righteous. (laughs) Made righteous. So in other words, not only did the cross work of Jesus Christ expiate your sin and remove your sins as far as the east is from the west, and you know if you get in a plane and you head east tonight, you'll be heading east forever. If you head north, eventually you'll be heading south, right? So if you head east, you're just going east. East and west never, ever meet. That's how far your sins are removed in Christ. Made righteous? So not only has he removed your sins, he's also taken, like, here's my son. Here's my son, perfectly righteous, holy. All of Christ's righteousness, my son's righteousness, I'm going to place on Mark's account. So when I see Mark, I see Jesus, my son. And anyone who's, yeah, you should say amen, (laughs) because... And we all should say amen who are in Christ. That's who you are. Because of him who died and rose again. So he was born under the law. He obeyed the law perfectly. He laid down his life again. No man took Jesus' life. It was only according to the sovereign purposes of God and his providential will that they actually laid hands upon him. But Jesus made it clear, no man takes my life. I lay it down. I deliver myself unto death. Or he never would have died. Because he's sinless. Consequences of sin is death. He bore your sin. That's why he died. Number five. But now, since Christ has been raised, the dead in Christ, Katie, she has not perished, and neither will you. All believers who have died in the past, your believing mother, your believing father, your believing brother, your friends, they are in the presence of Jesus soon to receive their resurrected body when he comes in glory. The dead in Christ will rise first. 
Jesus said in John 14, because I live, you will live also. So the Bible does not teach that you live everlastingly in spirit form in heaven or in hell. There's a resurrection of the righteous, and there's going to be a resurrection of those who are suffering in hell right now, right? A resurrection, when Christ returns, those who are suffering in torment right now will have a body resurrected to be met back with their spirit, but it'll be a resurrected body that is fit to be cast into the lake of what? Fire. Death and hell will be cast into the lake of fire. Your body in Christ will be fit for a new heaven and a new earth. Number six. So since you do have eternal life, and since the work of Jesus Christ is validated by way of the resurrection, number six, but now since Christ has been raised, we are not to be pitied. We are to be enviable. Envied. By who? The unbelieving world. You see, we're recipients of the gospel. We're carriers, messengers of the gospel. Messengers and carriers and recipients of the one true faith. The divine, factual message, not the earthly and fictional message that men could try within their own minds. You see, you've come here for a morning, for, uh, for a reason this morning, Amen. It's the same reason we show up every Sunday, beloved, if you're in Christ, right? Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday. Every day for the Christian is Resurrection Sunday. And because of Resurrection Sunday, every day is Passion Week. Amen? He laid his life down, validating his work on our behalf, upholding the law, laying down his life as a sacrifice, shedding his blood for, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. I'm covered, I'm atoned for, because... He was raised from the grave. We don't meet on Saturday, right? Well, the Sabbath. No, Jesus is the Sabbath. He is the Sabbath. Christ, he's the gospel. Jesus Christ is the covenantal promise and the fulfillment thereof. Jesus Christ is the true Israel. Jesus Christ is the true Jew. Jesus Christ is the promised land. Jesus Christ is the life. Jesus Christ is the way because Jesus Christ is the resurrection from the dead. Glory to God. So the church meets on Sunday because that's the day he was raised from the dead. And then once a year, the Easter celebration, Resurrection Sunday, we focus all of our attention in the direction of the resurrection as we ought. Especially because we get a lot of people who come in who never go to church. We come at Christmas and Easter. We're glad because this is the opportunity to declare that truth once again. So Christians, how do we apply this truth to our lives? It's quite simple. We'll apply it the same way Paul applies it to his life. Last verse, 1 Corinthians 15. Notice. Therefore. Now, what's the therefore, therefore, when you read the Bible? The therefore is there to take you back to that which he just has been explaining. So we go backwards. Everything that has to do with the validation of Christ's work is the resurrection. And without the resurrection, there's no hope. Therefore, because he has raised up again from the dead, my beloved brethren, be what? Steadfast means persevere. 
Be immovable. Be of single-mindedness. Always abounding, overflowing in the work of who? In the work of our Lord. Knowing that your toil, it's not in vain in the Lord. Amen? It's not in vain. So we're going to dwell in a new heaven and a new earth with resurrected bodies with our Lord and one another forever because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So may none of us near death and say, I've wasted my life. Is I think John Piper would probably say something like that. Don't waste your life, right? I've wasted my life. It doesn't have to be so. Christ is risen. Everything therefore done in the name of Jesus Christ, by the power of his strength, for his glory, it's not in vain, beloved. You will suffer persecution. You will suffer setbacks. There will be discouragements and disappointments. But if we focus on being discouraged, we're looking inward. Look to Christ. His finished work. And then that is enviable. That is significant. That's valuable. And beloved, that's eternal. The unbelieving world will know the church by what? Not necessarily the love we have for them, but the love we have for one another. That's what's envious or enviable. Rejoice, believers. He is risen. Now to conclude, perhaps you're here this morning. And after hearing all this, the Holy Spirit is now working in your heart and your mind and is convicting you to know within that you don't know Jesus. You know about him. You know about tradition. You know about confirmation. You know about communion. You know about going to church. And you've performed all those things, but you don't know Jesus. How should you respond this morning to the reality of Jesus Christ, who's been raised from the dead? The answer, Acts 17. There's Paul talking to those Greek philosophers. He preaches the one true way. He said this. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring men to men that all people where? Everywhere. You know, everyone looks at the truth of Jesus Christ every day around this globe, every time they look at the calendar. 2010. Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should what? Repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man, Christ, whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from what? The dead. Repent means to have a change of thinking, friends. Repent means this. 
You're, you've been going this way. You are God in your mind. And the ideologies about these false gods that you had, they're false. You've been convicted. It's been pointed out. Repentance means that you turn from that. You turn from your ways. You turn from your ideologies this way, and you embrace Jesus the only way. Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. You've heard the gospel. This means coming to a place of genuine repentance where you confess your sinful condition. You confess to him between you and he your sinful heart, your sinful mind that you desire to leave it and you desire Jesus to become his disciple. And the Bible says to repent and believe you shall be saved. So I say to you this morning, repent. Remove your pride, remove your traditions, remove your religion, and come to the person of Jesus Christ. And he'll save you. Because he is risen. So any and all other systems of belief, the walls of religion that you've surrounded yourself with will come crashing down just like the St. Francis Dam if you are not in Christ, who died and rose again. Amen? Let's pray before we come to the Lord's table. Our glorious Lord, our mighty Savior, we thank you for the revelation of your one true plan established in eternity past, made manifest in time, made more clear over time, and then consummated at the cross as the Old Testament declared. Truth fulfilled. Jesus, who is the Christ, the one and only way, who laid down his life after upholding your law, who came bursting forth from the grave. Lord, may you bless your people this morning, and I pray that as we approach your table, to be reminded of these things, that we will... Rejoice in knowing that we remember what you remember. And that is the finished work of your son. So that we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Even in our weakness, we know that we have a great high priest, a mediator, who understands our weakness, who understands what it is to be tempted, yet without sin. Stepping in our place, laying down his life, covering us, with his righteousness, shedding his blood for us, raising up again to validate that truth so that we can rest assured that we are in Christ, saved, justified, sanctified, one day to be glorified. We have everlasting life. For anyone here this morning, Holy Spirit, I pray that you would sear this truth into their hearts, that you would cause them to bow down before you, to remove all pride, to humbly say, God have mercy upon me, a sinner so that they like the tax collector can walk away to their house justified declared free from all blame pray in jesus name amen